Okay. Well, let's start with the um the first topic. Uh, of course, some of you guys may have seen Magnus Carlsen like mouse slipping today and uh just losing a winning position to to Nepo. Um, yep. And earlier in the year, there was a lot of online tournaments where there was a couple games just decided, if not by a, a mouse slip, but uh, a straight up just disconnection. The player disconnecting, flagging, forfeiting the game, and, and that was it. The point was just decided. So is that a yeah. problem? And if so, what should be done about disconnections think, and mouse slips? I think the first time I put this topic into our topics spreadsheet, um, Kostya, was after the Kasparov versus Caruana game, I think, from St. Louis, where he like had played a move, um, but somehow it got put in as like a pre-move. And then he was sitting there like trying to undo it the whole time Caruana was thinking on his move and he couldn't find a way to undo this pre-move. And so then he ended up like hanging a piece like a minute later. Um, and it was just like, you look at it, it's just like horrifying. It has nothing to do with chess. And so that's when I put this topic in here. So um, I'm going to let uh, Jesse start. Jesse, what should we do about this problem? Well, I want to say this is an example, this whole realm of where I'm both an older dude and a chess elitist in that I don't believe in online chess mm -hmm. in contrast to Magnus, right? Right. Um, so I don't believe in online chess and I don't think you're, uh, I, you know, and let me just say it's, it's mostly aesthetic, my judgment. So, and I mean that, I, I mean that in the way that people can attack me for my opinion in this sense, it, it's mostly aesthetic. My basis for saying that whenever I'm seeing something online, I don't feel it is real, right? I don't feel like it's a real event. And, um, I think the younger generation will just disagree with me on that, but these all these things around online chess are what's always made it feel unreal with the mouse slips and the disconnections and the cheating um and for example if i play blitz online and someone tries to do a take back i'm like no i mean it's ridiculous just start a new game <laughs> you know, we just, we're just gonna play a new game just like, get going you know but obviously um you know, and it's so weird because these guys, when they start playing blitz chess, you're going to make mouse slips because you're doing pre-moves and all kinds of other weird stuff. Mm -hmm. So um, there I feel I'm a chess traditionalist and I just see this as an example of how chess will not make it as an online business. But I'm, you know, I want to say I'm the minority opinion on this one. So you're like the whole rapid online thing is so stupid that you don't even care if they're having disconnections. Either way, it's not for you to watch. I've never been interested as a fan, right? Um, and I don't think you solve those problems. Yeah. Okay. That's a curmudgeonly answer. I'm going to admit it. Yeah. I'm going to admit there's a curmudgeonly answer. Yeah. Um, Jesse, I just want to say you're a little bit quiet, so maybe you want to check oh. your, your mic settings there real quick. Okay, I'll check that. Um, but uh, yeah, if I could jump in, I, I'm with you guys. I think for the most part, it really sucks when a game is decided, especially by a disconnection or something like technical um, that's kind of out of the, the player's control. I think those games, we have the capacity to just restart them. And at the highest levels, we're not worrying about players like checking Stockfish like while they're waiting for their game to recommend or, or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and when it comes to mouse slips, I mean... I don't know. I, I think uh, you do get into a gray area because, you know, it has to be someone has to decide like what's an obvious mouse slip and, and what isn't. That was 
I remember a small issue in like the old US chess league where like if someone mouse slipped, they had to like immediately claim it. And then there was like an arbiter to kind of confirm that like, okay, they made a very strange move and it, it was clear that they were intending to make this other move. But nowadays there are different kinds of, of mouse slips. Uh, for instance, like what happened to uh, Gary. I also had just a similar thing on stream the other day where I didn't realize like a piece was of mine was selected and I tried to highlight the D5 square and all of a sudden I'm putting my knight on pre to like two pawns. <laughs> and it's like, that didn't look like an obvious mouse slip. There was no good knight moves around there, right? So it's not like, I don't know. So we get into some weird areas at heart. I kind of think like mouse slips are up to the player. And if you mess up with the mouse, if you fudge the mouse, that's that's on you. Some players, they, they mess up with their hand. They do a finger failure. And uh, that's of course on, on them as well, even though it's kind of like, I don't know, to me, schematically, it feels similar to a mouse slip. Mm -hmm. um, so long story short, yeah, I think restart the games when they're decided by disconnections. And uh, mouse slips are a bummer, but an unfortunate uh, part, of, part of the game. Okay, well, I, I think the mouse slip just ruins that particular game and leaves a bad taste and it's like stupid and pointless and we don't need to accept that because we can do better so i mean these are tournaments that are played with an increment just to be clear right i mean these tournaments have like five second increment or ten second increment depending on the tournament or whatever so i mean they're not supposed to just lose they're not supposed to just lose because they can't enter a move right I understand in like, you know, 3-0 or whatever, it's partly about executing the moves that fast and people are pre-moving and stuff. But in theory, when you're playing like 15 plus 10 or 15 plus 5 or 25 plus 10, like you're not really supposed to be losing because you can't enter a move into the board fast enough that you can see. And so it just sort of like ruins a game that would have been interesting. I mean, Magnus's game against Nepo would have been more interesting to see a, a few more moves. So just give him a take back and then we can see the whole game. It's, I mean, it's not, it's not that hard. As you mentioned, the U.S. Chess League used to do it. You just need to have like a couple people who are tasked with making that call on whether or not the move should be a take-back move or not, um, whether it really is a mouse slip. So I don't think it's that hard to do. You know, a tournament of this kind, like they're doing four different English language broadcasts, right? Like the number of people involved in just having a few rapid chess games played is staggering right? There's probably like 200 people at least minimum in the world, like working on this like event. So add, add one or two more who are like rated over 2200 to like, just be in charge of like adjudicating a mouse slip. If it comes up pretty, pretty easy to do. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, we have arbiters in other sports that kind of have to make yeah. judgment calls. Arbiters uh, that have to make calls. Sometimes the call's close, but I mean, they're not going to do worse than having no calls at all. Yeah, I don't think yeah anyone in their right mind would have seen Magnus's game today and concluded that that wasn't a mouse slip because he just yeah. yeah literally just like yeah it was just a very clear clear case yeah so I mean and we had a game in the dojo tournament this morning where somebody wanted to play rook d6 from d1 and dropped the rook on d5 or it was attacked by some pieces and their opponent moved their rook onto a square that was attacked, and then he moved his rook back to d1, and then he moved his rook back to where it had been. Just like that, you know? Just whatever. And then they kept playing the game with, with rook d6 played. So wh why not do that? I mean, you've got, like, you've got like tens of thousands of people watching the game, right? Invested in it. You're trying to provide a good, a good product. I mean, you might as well try. I think the only reason they don't do it is because they're idiots. I don't think it's because... 
it's because you can't do better. It's because they haven't even thought about it. Um, first of all, can you guys hear me better this time? Mm -hmm. I hear you. Okay. I hear you, but it, the volume I think is the same as before. Sorry. Um, okay. I don't know what to do. Uh, it's, I've had this problem before and it makes me scream in frustration because I don't understand the problem, but I'm going to try something else. How yeah. about now? How about now? Is that different? Um, that's a little crisper for me. I don't know if it's okay. like, I'll try it. Um, it's definitely audible. Let me say that the thing with the mouse slips, I've, I, I guess I have an attitude about that and I'll just recount an experience. So Kostya, the evil genius that he is, somehow got into my brain that I should be doing Puzzle Rush. Now, one thing I'll say about Puzzle Rush is you got to be lightning fast. And my mouse, my hands, my mouse skills aren't that good. I mean, I can't move that mouse that fast, man. But what I've noticed as I've tried to increase the speed, because every nanosecond counts if you're trying to get your highest score of all time, is that I mouse slip all the time. I mouse slip all the time. And um, that's really the only time I mouse slip. And so I think, and this is also my experience playing that, that the, the, the games online, like the longer games too, is if you are doing that super fast move mode, you are guilty yourself of the mouse slip. You are the cause of the problem because you didn't move slow enough. And even an old guy like me can get the moves right just by moving it a little slower by placing the piece. You know, it's the equivalent, the over the board equivalent would be like somebody who's moving so fast that they're crashing the pieces on the board. No, you <laughs> yeah. can't do that either, you know, yeah. illegal. Yeah. I've never had a mouse slip where I wasn't like uh, playing super fast. You know, I just don't believe those kinds of mouse slips happen. I mean, maybe if you're playing on your phone or something, it's going to happen. But, you know, come on. No, you can avoid the mouse slips. Okay. But, and then there's also the disconnects. I mean, I think it just shows like they've got no policy for disconnects. Do you guys remember the Olympiad was? decided by people disconnecting multiple people both the semis and the finals yeah. like it's completely unsatisfying they don't even have a champion right they made some weird rule to decide that both teams were champions or something after the games were disconnected rather than forfeiting them like they did in the previous round so it just like make up something random at the time like you've got that many not great minds like focused on these events and so many people watching in such a production They've got four different English language broadcasts. They've got 10 other languages broadcasting. And they, they, they can't even like say like, hmm, is somebody going to get disconnected at some point? Like Dingley Ren, maybe five times in this tournament, probably, if we wanted to guess in advance. And we've got no plan in place for that. You know, it just sucks for Ding, you know, poor guy. You know, he used to play chess. Now sometimes he just sits there like screaming at his internet provider. <laughs> and nobody cares. Well, speaking of ding, let's go ding, 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 and move it to the next one. Yeah. Sure. Um, yeah, let me reset the clock here. Actually, people are already talking about this one in the chat. I mean, this topic is always it's always pretty heated. So we gotta we gotta touch it. Obviously, we have to <laughs> we have to discuss it. Um, is it ever okay to steal chess books online? Jesse, why don't you take it away? Uh, now, Ghost is pointing me to this one because I insisted we cover this, and it's of all the topics today, it's the one I feel strongest about. Um, this is also a little bit generational, 
um, because the millennials invented stealing stuff from the online world and they just proudly do it. They think it's their God-given right to steal stuff from the online world. And I'm really opposed. Now, let me just say there are gradations of stealing. I think, I do think stealing in general is wrong, but if you want to make an argument to say like stealing from super large companies or that is that that's less bad than stealing from some small guy who doesn't you know is just making a minor profit if anything off something like a chess book then i'm fine with that kind of gradation even though i'm still going to insist that stealing is wrong and has negative effects um i also think there's a gradation say between i, I think if you don't pay your taxes to let's say the national government that that's a smaller crime than not paying it to your local government and there's reasons for that. I can go into the detail about why it's a bigger crime not to pay your local government. In any case, your local government doesn't commit war crimes. Continue. No, because my local government can't go bank can go bankrupt, whereas the oh. national government can go bankrupt. Okay. Um, so can't go bankrupt. Excuse me. The national government can't go bankrupt because it can print its own money. Um, in any case, right? This has been a thing that I think has really plagued chess books, and it's the near future we're going to talk about which books we think are great. And I'm going to say that this plague of stealing books has really resulted in the, it's lessened the quality of our chess literature dramatically to the point where people putting out chess literature, they're doing it for their platform more than they are for the potential profit that they should be getting for the hard work they're putting into it. And that leads to people not putting in the intense effort it takes to really write a book well, to formulate really clean sentences, to think deeply about concepts. All that goes out the window when you're not going to make a lot of money. Instead, you're going to do something like Cyrus Locked the Wall. We just had him on. That guy's doing more than a book a month, I think. <laughs> I mean, he's putting them out there, man. He said four per year. Yeah. It, it's really a lot. Yeah, it's huge amount. Um, and another clear example it just happened in our book club where because uh, Agard has his books routinely stolen, I can't get them on Kindle. So then I tried to get them on Forward Chess and that Forward Chess has this whole thing, but I can't even get Forward Chess onto my Kindle. And I would have to have it on my computer, but I, you know, as a, somebody who likes to study chess, I, I'm not going to, I don't want any kind of device near me when I'm doing that. You know, I don't want, I just want to be me and my board. So it's dramatically affecting the chess world and you are screwing over very small people who are not making a lot of money on their books anyway. And I put it for myself. Uh, I would love to write a book someday. I don't want to make a million dollars, but it would be nice to get paid, I don't know, five bucks an hour for the work I do. And at the moment, even if I put in a lot of effort, it's not going to be that. So no, I'm very opposed to people stealing books. Yeah. Um, I think that when it comes to stealing essentials, like, you know, food and shelter and stuff like that, health, healthcare products, um, it's both like, okay for people to do it. If they, if they are desperate enough that that's their only way to get it. And like, it's also pointless to even argue about whether or not it's okay or not. Cause they're going to do it right. Like if you're literally going to starve to death, you're going to steal a piece of bread. Nobody's just going to sit there and like die. Um, when they have a, a chance to steal a piece of bread. So it's pointless to like criticize something like that. But I think you get, if you get beyond essentials, then basically stealing starts to become 
mostly wrong. And uh, I do think that the gradations are pretty important. But um, honestly, I can't imagine like a real reason why anyone would steal a chess book that would that would be that would justify a chess book being stolen. Because if your if your situation is so dire financially that you can't afford to give the author, you know, two or three dollars for their work, um, then you probably don't have time to be studying chess anyway, right? You probably have some bigger problems to be working on in your life. So I think I. I think that the people who do steal chess books are probably all people who could have afforded to send the author some money for their book. You know, even if you find it in some like download somewhere, whatever, you know, send the guy like $5 on PayPal or something. Um, so I think that the people who do steal chess books in practice, probably none of them have any kind of excuse for it. They're just uh, people who care more about themselves than about other people. Uh, okay, so I saw Jeff in here as the uh, millennial <laughs> uh, voice. I mean, yeah, to me, it doesn't feel like uh, the biggest problem out there, for sure. Um, if you ask me, like, okay, is it okay to steal chess books, then I would just go, probably not. Uh, I think it's much worse, though, to be the one that's, like, scanning and sharing. I think that's kind of, I mean, that's the real... The real problem like if there are free chess books online people will will download them but the the issue is the people like scanning and then uploading uh the books and then trying to like specifically make a profit off of that off of people downloading stolen copies of chess books so that of course is just like egregious um when it comes to the example of someone who like just can't afford books and this is the only way they can read chess books and, and play chess honestly yeah i i'm totally fine with that like if they're not going to buy books otherwise, and they're not like sharing books with hundreds, thousands of other people, and this is the only way that like they can become a chess player and like become good and start like playing tournaments. I know this is a very rare example. I know this is not the experience of most people taking books online. Um, but yeah, for that for that player who's just like doing it to to get by, I think uh, I think they're going to give more back to the community eventually if they actually become like a real a real chess player. Um, now, as an author myself and as someone who probably has this book out there in fact i'm sure because i've seen it um to me i just feel like if if someone steals my book and then doesn't get use out of it meaning they only read like a, read it for a second or they just don't read it at all then okay makes no difference to me they didn't they didn't steal a physical book but if if they actually read it and then they get some use out of it I don't know. I think they're more likely to come to a stream or like start watching my YouTube channel, like start watching my videos. I think there are going to be positive benefits for me as an author uh, if if someone actually uses my work and then enjoys it. Yeah, because if they're here right now, we can tell them they're a jerk face. That's <laughs> well, right. And what you hear, what Kosi just said, is I think the millennial perspective is that the book is not about a minor profit which compensates the author for his or her struggles, but rather a means of a platform that they can then use to do something else, right? So the book is then a platform generating mechanism instead of the old model of like, oh, we're gonna give the guy a buck for the work he's done. Yeah, but what if some guy doesn't have a platform? I mean, Lock the Walla doesn't have like a streaming channel where he's hoping to eventually monetize like an ad, you know? What if somebody doesn't want to show an ad on their stream, right? Then you get their stream for free also. What do they ever get out of it? Well, first of all, I'm totally on your side. I was just trying to capture the millennial viewpoint. <laughs> and well, the I, can't, about... I can't not refute it. 
<laughs> the thing that about it that's so pernicious, though, is that it's a culture of stealing at this point. You know, it's a full culture where they can't even imagine paying anything for. Yeah. Uh, if anything. if I'd written a book, which I didn't, but if I'd written a book and and published it and it were out there and somebody didn't want to send me a dollar for my book and my book gave them joy, I would be upset that they got joy from my book. I would want that joy back. I want them to just be sad in a corner and not know how to play chess well, lose to all their friends because they haven't had the chance to read my book. Um, here's an interesting question. What if we download my system? And dude is obviously not earning any money from it. That's an example actually of gradations. And I do mm -hmm. want to say yeah. that somebody did put in a hell of a lot of effort to translate it. You can get the German original online. I've tried because me and David speak German. And the, the original German, by the way, is very interesting because dude is not a native speaker of German. So he has a lot of idiosyncrasies in the way he writes. In any case, um, that's all online. So like there's a lot of Google books, for example, from back in the day that are online and easy accessible in the original languages. There is a problem when you start stealing stuff that has been translated because it is work. You know, I've thought about doing translation work myself, and there is a lot of work out there when you do it. So, yeah. it, you know, is it if you stole a 1960s translation of a guy who's already dead, is it less bad than stealing a book that was recently published? I guess so, if you want to gradate it like that. But one mm -hmm. of the interesting things about the book industry is when you produce a book, you can think of it like a stock. And if someone... Uh, is going to publish your book and invest the energy into uh, selling it, pushing it out there, then they have to believe that it's something that has worth 30 years down the road. And if people then say to themselves, oh, well, all books in 30, even 30 years down the road are capable of stealing, then you negate the power of the current author now to put his or her work out there. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to the next one, Tocostia. Oh, okay. this is good. We can come back to this one. We can come back to this one. Sure, absolutely. Um, I just want to say, you know, like I grew up when I was growing up, all digital content was free. And and the deal was you can have the content as long as you listen to the ads. So you would just watch TV all day and TV was basically free. Like, okay, you pay for the the service, right? But you're not paying for like each individual show or when you listen to the radio, you're not paying for each individual, but the deal is you listen to the ads. That's how they get you. And, right. and if you wanted like a physical product, then you had to buy it. <laughs> like, otherwise you're just dealing it. But now it's, it's all mixed up. So I blame the MP3. <laughs> <laughs> MP3s are great. MP3s <laughs> are great. People just need to pay for them. Look, technology is never good or bad. It's the people who use the technology who are bad. That's fair. That's fair. Technologies well, are kind of neutral, right? And then they can be used for good or bad. Morally. Yeah. Morally neutral technologies. For the most part. Um, okay. Well, next topic. Uh, is classical chess dead? Recently, Magnus, I think, implied... That wasn't looking so hot uh, for classical chess. I think Geary agreed with him. They kind of insinuated that the future is rapid and uh, and chess 960. Um, That's bad news for Geary. He's not that good at rapid. Yeah. <laughs> or, or 960. Uh, 
So, well, yeah, number one, I guess, do we agree with this? And number two, what should we do about it? Because we're all, we're all team classical chess. Right. So we all disagree, right? We can move on to the other part. Yeah, it's not dead, but it's dying. Well, it's, I mean, I, let's, I, yeah, I don't, let's try to take the opposing view seriously for a second, right? So mm -hmm. it's definitely, first of all, a millennial's view because... <laughs> Right, though, seriously, because they are into the online chess, and online chess is simply faster. It's moving faster, so it's a different perception of what chess is. It's a faster kind of chess, right? And um, what I think Magnus sees, definitely even as a business opportunity, is that online chess is the thing that's going to generate the huge interest. And what he sees in this COVID uh, situation, it might be true, even. I mean, I want to just grant him all the points, even if I disagree with him, is that people like Naka and Geary and others are using their streams to do live stuff and talk about it and yada, yada. And it's generating a whole bunch of interest and cash. And uh, if someone wants to then use that trend to say that classical chess is toast, then, you know, you at least have to take it seriously. Right? Yeah, I mean... Um... It does make sense. More people are interested in watching uh, quick chess, especially online. Um, so, well, hang on. We don't know that for sure, right? We know that people are watching what chess.com and chess24 serve them, but chess.com and chess24 have a big platform and they're only serving rapid chess. If they were serving a classical tournament, maybe people would watch it. It's hard to know, right? If there's only two restaurants and they're both serving the same thing and then they're saying, oh, this is what people are ordering. No, but I mean, we've had, we've had classical chess commentary for like over 10 years now since St. Louis started doing it. Um, and I mean, it's been, it's been popular, but uh, St. Louis was criticized for kind of ruining classical chess, for making it like too spectator friendly and like to kind of beginner friendly, uh, even though that was clearly the right approach from like a marketing point of view, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So I get it. Like, yeah, I mean, and I, I don't know. I, I think personally, I do find rapid and like classical is obviously fascinating and I'm never going to miss like the world championship or the candidates or any of these like big events. But uh, I get it. Yeah, if I'm just like a, a fan of something, I just want to see the, the highlights, you know, the, the rapid stuff. I feel like if you think about like esports, like I'm not a huge esports guy, but the the biggest clips, you know, the most popular things, it's always like someone making a genius play, you know, 200 IQ in like a split second. I mean, it's like it's nice when someone makes a smart play, like kind of drawn out, but it's even more impressive when they're just like a genius for for a moment. Um, at least it, that's what appeals to the uh, to the masses, it seems. So that's that's where they're taking chess. That's I think what they what they want to do. So it doesn't mean classical chess is uh, is dying, but um, I don't know. If it was up to me, it would be ninety plus thirty right now. That would just be the normal time control. Get ninety minutes, no second time control, one game a day, <laughs> ninety plus thirty. That would be that would be my ideal. Oh, I'm still with forty twenty, and then you know. <laughs> 40 and two and then 30 minutes and then 30 minutes another one after that yeah um agreed one thing though i guess here <laughs> let's put into a i think it's a cultural thing more than anything so for example uh i feel in a similar kind of way movies films who are dying which were two two and a half hours long 
and are now being replaced by shows and shows originally were like 50 to 60 minutes long and now they're getting faster and faster getting like 20 minutes 15 minutes long and we've seen that too even on the dojo doing chess content where um uh, if we do a show, a, you know, that's long, you're going to get far less views than some jazzy little video that you do that's like 10 minutes long. Because just like people want that, uh, that quick consumption, um, and they want something like out of it right away. And that's just a trend that, you know, I, the way I feel about it with the classical chest is it's never going to fully die. Uh, it might become less popular and... It will always exist. It, it will definitely always have some places, some little universe in which it's going to exist in. And I think where it will become an interesting cultural question is when the outside world looks in on us, the chess world, and asks itself, what is this game they're playing? Why do we think it's a smart person's game? Is there something beautiful going on in it? And if their answer is, oh, it's the classical chess where the beautiful stuff is happening, even if they're not willing to watch it, even if they want to watch the rapid instead, if they say, oh, it's the classical chess where the real uh, game is played, then then not only will it continue to exist, but it will basically be the standard, right, to which people look when they ask themselves, what is chess? And that's where I think it's not actually toast, even though all the trends are against us. Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, the standard and tradition, I mean, really strong in the chess world so it's i mean hard to imagine a future where classical chess isn't still kind of like respected more than everything else yeah i mean i guess from a certain perspective if you know the leaders of of chess 24 and the leaders of chess.com and magnus carlson and you know other like important people in the chess world decide that they don't support or like or want classical chess in a certain sense they could they could kill it but but i would but i would say that it was definitely viable you know they just miscalculated and and a similar topic i feel like magnus isn't that serious about the world championship title and like i don't think he sees it as the uh, defining moment of his ego of what he's doing in life. And to me, that's, that's where it touches my coconuts because I'm like, wait a second, buddy, you're, you're holding on to the Holy grail. When people judge you as a player of the greatest all time or whatever, it's that they're going to be looking to, but he's, I don't think he's looking to that. And if dude ever says, Hey, I'm out of here, then that will be a huge blow to classical chess because at the heart of it, it's the ritual and the tradition of the world chess championship that, I don't know, to me, defines the de defines it from the top down of what classical chess is. One thing I really feel strongly about is that the current cycle is just too long. Like you got it, you need can't just have like this system where you got to like unseat the previous world champion who can just like sit and just like prepare for the matches. Yeah, I don't, oh, I don't no, like I'm, that at all. Oh, we're gonna have to do that as a different topic because i'm i want to fight you guys on that one for sure yeah and i mean the there's definitely topic. a lot of things they could make they could do to make classical chess better in terms of how they organize their tournaments you know shuffling the pieces at the start of the game um you know changing how many people are playing in the tournaments and who they play against um there's a lot that could be done to improve it um 
but there are definitely tournaments that I would want to watch and players whose games I would want to watch. So, yeah, I mean, Whereas, imagine in, in tennis if it was if it was like that. If like the top tennis player could just like sit and play only a couple tournaments a year, and then as long as they just win that like one big match, they just stay like number one for for years yeah. and years. Oh, I totally wait. Okay. Now that we're on the topic, I gotta defend it. If somebody wants to play at world championship level, they have to at least play a couple tournaments a year to keep their skill up. And about two years, we see it is is a good time span for people to figure out who how the next cycle happens. And if anything, I I want to go back to the day where we had matches to determine who gets to play the champion. I think that was a beautiful system. Yeah. And when you think about it, like Fisher playing Petrosian and Larson and Diamondoff, what a beautiful set of matches. And through the 80s as well, beautiful matches to see who gets to play the champion. I don't even like this. You know, I don't think that's going to change back to the way it was, but right. I'm all in favor of that. And that just takes some time. No, I'm with you, Jesse. I, I love matches. Like for me, an awesome system would be some kind of like, series of open qualification tournaments things like the isle of man and like world cup where anyone can get in and then you just take the top eight players from those and like have them play a knockout for the world championship you know something like that um maybe the world champion starts in like the elite eight or something you know as like a privilege but uh the thing you can't have that last three years though like we can't wait until like 2023 you know 2022 yeah. to figure out a new it's just it takes too long um yeah 18 months tops. I mean, this, like, like obviously it's now it's all screwed up. But think about that two years. That was great, man. We didn't know who was going to play in the candidates tournament. And the candidates tournament itself was like, what a bloodbath that was. That was fantastic. That was and, then we get to, and then we get to have a couple months and then we have the tournament. You know, it's great. Yeah. But that doesn't even, I mean, even the candidates doesn't seem fair. It's not like the clear number two player always wins the candidates. I feel like they oh, often don't. Yeah. Okay, let's go on to the next one. Oh, no, yeah, keep it moving. Spicy. Let's do this. Um, oh, shoot, this next one. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, this topic I honestly didn't even uh, understand at first, but then uh, Jesse and David informed me that this is a thing that people are concerned about. So let's discuss it, I guess. Is using the name Chess Dojo an improper cultural appropriation shall shall i just quickly define cultural appropriation and then sure. one of you can make the first answer or whatever mm -hmm. so cultural appropriation is when you take some piece of culture from a, a group of people and then you commodify or you know market or gain some value out of it for yourself and specifically it's if in if it's uh coming from a group if you're taking it from a group that is in a position of like less power or wealth than um, than yourself, okay. So, so you know, it's like uh, the idea would be like let's say there's a group that's more marginalized in terms of their political or economic power, and then you you trade on something that's associated with them. You're taking away space from them. Um, like, um, there was this guy who was doing really, really great, um, sign language, uh, videos online 
um, sort of like music videos to songs where he was like signing them. And then people from the deaf community complained to him that, you know, there were only a certain number of, well, that, that he was taking away space from what would be an important, um, uh, would be like an important source of like, you know, income and activity for uh, people who were not hearing. And then he uh, agreed with them and stopped doing his channel to leave space for deaf people to do, um, you know, to have the more popular uh, channels of that sort. So that's one example. Okay, so maybe I should introduce the topic this way, is that Kostya felt no uh, twinge at Chess Dojo. And I didn't really either, uh, but it's been both my wife and, well, well, I'll let David speak to his wife, but basically both expressed reservations. Like, I'd say with my wife, it's more like a twinge, like oh, a little bit of discomfort. Not necessarily like this is morally wrong, but it's like one of those twinges of of maybe like, Jesse, are you going to get yourself in trouble again? <laughs> are you saying something dumb again that's going to get you out yourself in trouble? That kind of twinge. Um, I say for myself, I think the idea of cultural appropriation is um, usually 99% of the time a misnomer. And a classic example we could apply to ourselves is the chessploitation that has been going on for years, right? Queen's Gambit, all these other shows, they're not interested in chess. They're going to steal our culture and use it to make a buck. And I'm going to say, fine. I don't care. <laughs> you can do it. We are a small minority community without a lot of capital, and you're taking it from us, and we are the endangered species, but it's okay. You can you can exploitate me. It's all right. And um, I, I feel similarly with just about every other example that's put out there. Um, and I, I'm really uncomfortable with a lot of the identity politics that goes around to people who especially on Twitter, would rage against cultural appropriation. I do want to say, I don't think there's been a lot of rage against the idea of chess dojo. There's just been these twinges, right, that David and I have experienced uh, people we know. Yeah. Yeah, I honestly haven't heard any, and I imagine I run in the most, in the most liberal of circles. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it seems like the chat is, is kind of okay with it. Um, yeah, no, I, I get more um, guff for referring to someone as they than for anything <laughs> related to uh, to Chess Dojo. Um, uh -huh. So yeah, for me, it doesn't seem improper, especially because we're not like, I mean, what one thing that is silly is when you take a culture's like normal uh, native wear and then you put it on and say like, it's a costume. <laughs> like, I think that's just very silly. Uh, and especially if you like make fun of it or like, you know, resort to like racial stereotypes um but like with chess dojo like i mean the name was always very genuine the idea was to have a place where players could focus on like chess improvement that would be welcoming to like coaches and senseis and in general the whole idea is that people are just trying to get uh better at chess um so yeah i mean it's clearly not like making fun of the idea of uh of dojos um, so yeah, it, it, it's an interesting example though, because I feel like, uh, from people who generally complain and scream about cultural appropriation, it's a classic cultural appropriation. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. 
you know, is it improper? I don't know. It depends on whoever you're talking to. But like I said, I don't really feel they're ever improper, but I, I'm old enough to be wary of like the little signifier games and I don't want to get involved in them. And I remember when we were talking about the name Chester, I was like, I could see this someone getting upset. And arguably if we got much bigger, right? If we blossomed as a platform and started getting bigger, there would be the, the, the little, uh, the, the little seeds of resentment that I'm sure are already out there about the name would grow into something conceivably much larger, right? Right. I mean, I think it's clear that we didn't do it with any like malice or ill intent or any like, you know, disrespect or anything like that. I don't think anyone would say that, you know, our intentions are, are nice and so forth. Um, and... Well, for example, if my daughter went out and put on an Indian headdress costume for Halloween, she would be right. doing that with the best intentions too, but then yes. someone would be really upset. Exactly. So I wanted to say, so I wanted to say is that doesn't necessarily mean that it's not a problem just because we're, you know, nice people or something like that. Um, I think the question is, if, um, is if there's some kind of harm, right? If something's being taken away from, um, from other people, if we're taking space away or money away from, um, you know, Japanese people in some way. Um, we're definitely not taking much money away from anyone for now. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't know that anyone would feel harmed by what we're doing, but it's, I actually don't have an answer to this question because I'm not sure. Um, this is one interesting thing that I, I, may, I don't want to get away from this too much, but someone in the chat had an interesting comment, and that was to say, Wait, Costa, you're in a more liberal circle than Dave. <laughs> and I think there's some interesting questions, like what are the gradations there? Um, and my guess is that David is more economically what we would call liberal, being a communist, but that you, with the younger crowd you're hanging out with in the South Bay, that they would be, in terms of identity politics and stuff, that they would really get more offended, or potentially, about something. I right. mean, I do think of liberalism as a right-wing approach. <laughs> <laughs> See, there we go. There we go. <laughs> um, yeah, I actually, I should, I should clarify. I'm like, yeah, not a huge fan of the uh, the SJW crowd. Um, actually, I think yeah, Vishnu makes a lot of good points about this <laughs> of all people, but he's all about like you know, kind actions are better than than empty words. You know, this kind of thing, um, which which I think speaks to how I feel uh, politically, uh, as well. Um, yeah, I meant to say like, right. I'm around a lot of socially justice aware people that, um, hopefully would have, yeah, given me some guff by now, if it was, um, someone also made the comment that, yeah, it's often people being offended, uh, on others behalf. And I, I think that's definitely, that's definitely been, been true, uh, in different places that I've seen. And I do actually have a kimono and a katana. Somebody's asking if we dress in kimonos. <laughs> well, for example, we appropriated this little cool symbol, like a green belt or an orange belt for like people doing subscribers. We're using that. I don't feel offended by that, but it, right, we're starting, we, you know, once you start with Chess Dojo, it's a slippery slope. It's it's a quick line to wearing a kimono, man. <laughs> yeah, 
I mean, if we just called it Chess School instead of Chess Dojo, it would sound pretty flat. Yeah. Our, uh, our channel. I thought of that today when, right. when we mentioned this topic. I was like, the alternative would be what? If we just translated it into English? Like, you know, not like a direct translation, but kind of like Chess School. When, uh, when we were... Here's an example of cultural appropriation. We were talking about somebody moving their pawns in front of their king maybe a little earlier. A little early in the game, I said uh oh, he's opening his kimono. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. it's a slippery slope, my friends. We could be in hot water real quick. It is dangerous yeah. for Jesse. I feel like Jesse almost gets himself canceled yeah. once per week. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I do, man. I do. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, let's move to the next one. Yeah. All right. Here we go. Um, so, this is a topic that I think. Not, none of us feel completely expert on, but I'm going to read a couple excerpts about this, and then we can talk about it. Um, basically, we're dealing with warring between schools, and this particular war goes back a ways. Um, and I think one thing that's interesting about it, right, is chess coaches, I guess, of which I'm one of them, put out a certain philosophy, and it is like a dojo in the sense that every teacher has some sense of what chess improvement would look like and um, different methods for achieving those goals and wars between teachers especially if they're not that ugly i think might at least be useful in clarifying uh certain positions right like um we had i thought a really cool dojo talk ages ago about different ways of training and if you had two people in a fight you know it could be kind of useful in elucidating what uh, is going on in those you know forcing both parties to explain what's going on so basically let me read a quote or two about this and we can take this where we want to um Agar, this goes back a ways. So let me just say, Watson published a book that was influential called um, The Secrets of Modern, Secrets of Chess Strategy. It's kind of like, it's something like development since Nimzovich was mm -hmm. the claim. But, uh, it was very well received. I'm a curmudgeon. I hate most books. I hated that book. I didn't think it gave anything. I didn't think it gave anything at all. So if we wanted to fight about that book someday, we can't. But in any case, um, the particular thing that Agar took issue with was the idea that, um, let me read this one Quote, I remember when I read Watson's Secrets of Chess Strategy, I was unconvinced about his idea of, quote, rule independence, where he was claiming that the strongest players were relying less and less on rules and more on calculations. I had a problem with this notion for several reasons. One is that Watson is American and that the strongest players in the U.S. do not have the kind of chess culture players in Eastern Europe and even some in Western Europe have. Yeah. If your training consists solely of opening analysis and tactical exercises and is not based on a chess education, it is an understandable point of view to have. However, the East Europeans who have thought a lot about rules just go through Watson's hero Mark Dvoretsky's books on positional plays, for example, that those that rephrase it. However, the Eastern Europeans who have thought a lot about rules are much better. At one point, 
there were no autodidact Americans on the U.S. national team. So a very controversial statement, but I think with a lot of truth to it. But I'll, I'll throw it to you guys first just to get your immediate reaction. Um, so, yeah, I was – I thought that this was it. I remember I was trying to um, explain the uh, – the controversy before and I, I was confusing myself because it sounded like Agard was the guy who's like against the school of calculation <laughs> based on right, that right and I was like yeah. oh, is that really what he was saying that doesn't seem like him uh right <laughs> but um yeah it seems like he's a guy who clearly um I remember uh one chapter he has I think in his book on I think it was positional play it was the old one like excelling at positional chess Mm -hmm. And um, there's just this example where, you know, Vichy uh, willingly accepts doubled pawns uh, in a position. And, and then it's actually good for him because he trades off one of the pawns and his pawns are like rolling and it was a fantastic decision. And Agard writes like, well, of course, Vichy understands that double pawns are usually bad, but he looked in the position deeper and, and figured out like why this is like an exception to the so-called rule. And I think that kind of that feels like that informs his uh, approach a bit. Um, so yeah, to me, it makes, uh, it makes a lot of sense. And I'm not too familiar with like, if with Watson's side, or if he had like a response to this or, or why even there, why even they had like such a heated or was it heated? Like what their fight was really all about. Yeah, I didn't know anything about this fight, but hearing um, Jesse's quote from Agard is like my first piece of information about this fight. And um, it seemed like in a very high-class way, he was he was trying to really cut us down over here in the U.S. <laughs> well, that's what a lot of people took issue with that. And I want to say, I think there's... A Especially if you go, the, the further back in time you go with American chess, the more it's true that there, there is a problem with chess culture in the United States. We talked about that a little bit. Other dojo talks about different methods of improvement. And I definitely think chess culture is a huge part of becoming a better player. Um, and it has to do with everything when you say the word chess culture, right? How, how you, you know, the decorum of play all the way through to the way you make decisions and kind of have, a, have various templates for understanding decisions. Um, and the way Watson paints it is a very um, stereotyped way of a certain kind of player uh, that probably doesn't exist even in real life, but it's true enough. It's true enough that I don't feel it's, I wouldn't totally disregard it. Interestingly, I'm curmudgeonly about both of these guys, so I don't really have a, a side, you know, to pick. And I do think that, uh, like Kosi himself says, when you get into Agard, a lot of times it, he sounds as if he's saying, well, you just have to calculate it all out, man. That's, what, and that's a lot of the messaging behind his books is. And yeah. um, when we're doing our book club, too, my, my biggest problem with the books that he did with Gelfand was that he did not get dude to slow down and say, wait, can you explain what you, you mean here? Because we're just getting some computer variations here, bro. That's not helpful. So, right, I feel like he's just as guilty, if not more, than Watson ever was in terms of at least of how he writes his books. Yeah. 
I'm yeah, I'm also I was shocked also in that quote that he was saying like that Americans lack chess culture because they think that chess is just opening analysis and then um solving tactics. Right. Because I thought those were the two biggest parts of his own approach to coaching <laughs> chess. Um, that is pretty confusing to me as well. Yeah. Um yeah, yeah, yeah. both from looking at a book of his and meeting him and talking to Sam about him mm. at length, my sense was that he was very, very heavy on calculation exercises. And also, you know, the only other thing to really do was to analyze openings. So a very weird to see that. And I wonder if, you know, his thoughts have changed a lot because the Watson book must be at least 15 years old, if not 20. Right. Maybe his thoughts have changed a lot in the last 15 to 20 years. I mean, the U.S. also, one of his digs was that we had no American-grown players on the national team. Now, now we have a whole bunch of American players homegrown who are over 26, 50 feet A in the top 100 in the world, right? So um, so perhaps the, the success of the American approach or what, I mean, I don't even know that any of these players have the same approach between, you know, Xiong and Robson and Caruana and Nakamura and Shanklin and Savion and on and on, right? But maybe he would change his mind both about American success and about you know, the importance of calculation versus principles. Well, if I could, if I can jump in, I feel like there should be kind of a distinction here. I don't know if this is um, Jakob's exact point of view or not, of course, but like, I, I feel like I remember him saying or reading uh, in his book, like, um, you know, when it comes to the level of players that he works with now, the super high level 25, 2600, they're not really making basic positional mistakes. Actually, as, as Sam told uh, Jesse, if he wants to beat you know, the, the U S seniors, he has to get them on the uh, calculation side. That's where they're, that's where the most, I guess, broom there is to, uh, to outplay someone just on the concrete side. So I would imagine that's why he's focusing on this now. I feel like, hopefully I'm not like misphrasing it, but uh, I feel like he often says, you know, the top players in the world, when they're making huge mistakes, they're usually calculation mistakes. Um, so that's why the focus is there. Whereas the books like Secrets of Modern Chess Strategy and Agard's like Excelling a Chess Series, these are aimed at developing players who are trying to become, you know, 24, 2500s. So it makes sense that for these players, it's right to focus on chess culture and less on like just tactics and, and straight calculation. Mm -hmm. So then where's the disagreement between them? I'm, I'm not really sure where it's at. Uh, well... Yeah, that's that's what I was wondering. I don't know where uh, Watson exactly. Um, well, no, it sounds like Watson was saying in his book that the top players are they make judgments independent of the rules. They just calculate and they they make decisions. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if he was extending that to like club players. Like this is how all players should strive to play. I think he was mainly looking at like examples of high-level play because he would show games like in Nimzovich's time and then he would show a game by like Ivanchuk or Vichy or, or whatever kind of like updating the concept so um mm -hmm. yeah John Harmon is saying that we should read the Twitter reviews by Watson and then some stuff on the quality chess blog and then apparently there was a huge back and forth on uh Elizabeth Spiegel's blog well isn't that what you were reading Jesse that's where I was reading it from yeah that's what uh -huh. oh did they have did they chime in on that blog 
Oh, dude, yeah, it's it's epic. Oh, well, let's hear it. What was? <laughs> oh no, no, we don't have time. We don't have time. But but I do think I I do think that the idea, the principal fight began over what we began with, what you noted originally, Coaster, which is the idea that somehow Watson, where we're talking about rule independence, and I think it it is important to think about modern chess. It, the idea being that before computers, people thought. Let me. I'm just speaking. I'm paraphrasing my own world here. That before computers, people thought more in terms of rules, like the things are done in a certain way. And then after computers, and the more modern players became uh, more uh, able to distance themselves from those rules, to see more exceptions, and to believe more in like uh, a calculation approach, and also like. Especially, I would think the ability to play positions that normally you would think were slightly worse. Like that came even in the 80s and before the computers came about. So I think that's at the heart of it. And that's honestly something we could talk about at length in another, another show. Yeah. I mean, I can say this. I picked up a, cool, a couple cool things in the Secrets of Modern Chess Strategy um, book. I learned a couple cool things in there. And I think in terms of that question of like following rules or not one thing that i've noticed is like stronger players have more specific rules i think like it's not like a new thing that people know there are exceptions to rules right it's not like in 1980 uh you know they followed rules or even in 1920 you know lasker you know wouldn't have just been like oh i should put my knight on this outpost because it looks like an outpost i'm sure he asked himself you know is the piece useful here in this particular position and does it actually attack a weakness or not and i mean i'm, I'm sure there was all kinds of exceptions known for many years and basically as people learn more and more exceptions their own principles become more and more refined right it's like oh in positions like this like i recently discovered something uh which i think maybe an idea which i'd never known before but i think in positions with opposite colored bishops um the queen is has many more examples where she can outperform two rooks than in positions not with opposite colored bishops something i picked up a couple weeks ago uh, and specifically it depends on you know how much initiative there is in the position and so forth but i think over time you pick up more and more like specific um, rules, which are the exception to your bigger rules, and then you find exceptions to those exceptions, and um, you know the the that players do have rules that they're using, but they're often uh, very specific at high levels. Well, well, we'll leave it at that. Uh, and I just want to say both are very nice people. I've met them both, and they're great guys, and they just love chess, and they just want people to get better at chess. And it's not like you guys see how nice goes here? They hate each other. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me begin. I'll begin the chess dojo update. Uh, I might even have to leave in a second. I am doing, uh, the next three weeks, I'm going to be doing this St. Louis GM and residence thing. And I got loads of events coming up. Uh, tonight, I'm doing what's called the Puzzler's Paradise every Sunday. Tuesday night, I'm going to be doing... Uh, what is it called? Insane in the end game, so an end game lecture. And then um, just loads of, oh, and then Wednesday, unrelated to St. Louis, I have my game review show from four to seven Eastern. That um, That's always a three hour big slugfest there before Thanksgiving. So that's my next three weeks. And um, I'll still be around to doing some stuff with the dojo, but I'll, I might be a little bit absent. 
but that also means everybody needs to follow the St. Louis Chess Club if they want to. Right. Absolutely. Watch you doing uh, that anyway. But yeah. Stuff. Yeah, I, I imagine most of them are, but I just put the link there. That's where you can find the classes Jesse's doing. Um, and your stream in like uh, 20 minutes, is that going to be on there? Yeah, that's going to be on their uh, site. And right, I'm not there, Mitch. I'm here at my house. I'm here at my house. As you can see, I'm not in St. Louis. Yeah. Uh, how about you, David? Any updates? Um, let's see. My daughter's school is going to be closed for a week after Thanksgiving. Oh man, is that a, that's just a COVID thing, or what is that? Just a, just a COVID thing. Um, basically, the school doesn't trust the families not to go somewhere for Thanksgiving. Oh man! So they want to have everybody stay at home for a week after Thanksgiving, just in case. Um. Pretty smart. Just in case some idiots have been traveling somewhere. It's a good idea. So, so that's going to cost me about a about a week of uh, of uh, daytime streams. But I'll try and uh, do a bunch of streaming in in the evenings over the next two weeks to make up for that. Uh, cool. And uh, let's see. I guess lately I've been doing uh, this rapid speed run, so I'll be continuing that soon, probably this week. Uh, we got a lot of videos coming out on YouTube soon, so that'll be fun. You guys should all follow our YouTube channel if you haven't already. Um, next month, we're going to have a ton more uh, USCS classes, US Chess School. So this is going to be great. We have uh, I am Alex Ostrovsky coming in uh, from, from Gotham Chess. Uh, Grandmaster is Johan Helstein, well-known author. Uh, Romain Edouard, French guy, is going to be teaching a class. A couple other folks, so it's going to be um, a great month in December for lessons and um and i'm gonna be tuesday night right Ghost? i'm coming up yeah jesse's right? coming up on tuesday he'll be doing the next class <laughs> so it'll be so it'll be cool um let's see what else oh we're we're working on next season of ultimate sensei um we got a bunch of applications in already we'll try to yeah. set that up soon do you have a, a sense of when the next season is starting? People are always asking. Yeah, I feel like it's gonna be it's gonna be December. I think the holidays are gonna be tough to get anything going. Mm -hmm. So we're probably looking at December where we get everyone ready. Because we want it we want it to be better than the first one. We want it to be like we want it to grow. All right. The first one was good. We should add too is our round robin, I think, is still open if people want to come into our round robin. That's right. Yeah, we have um, round robin events open now, 90 plus 30. If you want to play this time control, get some training games online, uh, you can sign up in the Discord. We have a tournaments channel. Um, when does the round robin start? It's actually going to be starting really soon. I think I'm going to be making um, pairings, uh, I think, tonight. And basically, players will be able to start playing uh, this week. And entry fee for this one is 5 bucks. So you gotta you gotta pay to play, but that just goes to to our friends Mitch and Matt who uh, run our spreadsheets for us and, and help us out a lot. So hopefully that buys them like one coffee a month. <laughs> 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 um and, hey, and yeah. do, you, do you have the uh, do you have the coaches for the next show or should I help you find a couple more coaches? No, we're gonna need coaches. We're gonna need coaches gonna still. Need coaches. All right, yeah. All right. 
Okay, guys, I got to run. I'll be back online at the St. Louis channel in half a second. All right. Cool. All right. Bye, guys. I'll see you there. See you guys. Uh, yeah, I think I'll wrap it up. Uh, we'll be back in a little bit with um, Sunday Night Fights tonight. And uh, yeah, catch you guys all, all in a bit.